You're listening to the Tag Team Podcast, the podcast that is a WWE Network companion, currently covering 1984 WWF Tuesday Night Titans. And now here are your Tag Team Podcast hosts, Jeff Jones and John Burke. What up, everybody? This is the Tag Team Podcast. I'm John Burke. I'm Jeff Jones. Episode Quattro. A very exciting episode, I must say. Yes, very exciting. Finally get some celebrities on the show. Awesome. Unexpected, but yes. Guess I didn't realize the reach of Vince McMahon. Yeah, you get one manager on one music video, and now you're on MTV. For what, a second? Maybe at the most? Yeah, well, not to hear him say it, but we'll get into that a little bit later. I cut some new items, little things what you got? here and there. Basically, I redid my whole hardware. Got a new-to-me computer. It's uh, Circuit 2010, I think it is. 2012. I don't know when the i5s come out. Where around there? Sounds about right. Uh, so we'll go with that. And I got a mic filter. So more popping, hopefully, on the recordings when I'm editing. Got a shock absorber. And we got an arm that extends out to make it look like a radio studio. So you are officially a DJ. Yes. I just don't have a radio station. But yes, playing top 40. That's neat. Yeah, I feel all professional. And still not getting paid. Well, one day, man, we'll get it. Yep. So far, we are pretty negative in the hole on this podcast. Patreon, people, Patreon. Please donate. What's been going on with you besides your new technology? Well, besides moving everything over from one computer to another, watched a little bit of Netflix. No mascar oh. kind of inspired me. I got some Lucha Libre off of Netflix. They had two documentaries out there for Lucha Libre. I watched them in the correct order because if you watch them in the incorrect order, it kind of makes it a little bit harder to follow because one focuses on updated Lucha Libre scene now and the other one focuses more on the history. So if anyone wants to watch these, Lucha Mexico is like a PBS type documentary. focuses mostly on the history of it. And then there's also Masked Men, A Journey Through Lucha Libre. That's more of a up-to-date version of how the scene looks now. And it focuses on some of the recent happenings that were actually out there in the paper at the time. You know, you did sort of inspire me. I remember you messaging me and saying, hey, check these out on Netflix. And I did watch Nacho Libre with Jack Black. So I think I'm still in the same realm. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you partial credit. No actual wrestlers were harmed in the making of that, unlike Masked Men, A Journey Through Lucha Libre. We had two people die in the documentary, so take that. We're trying to keep it family friendly, so. Ah, uh, you're no fun. One promotion's like the ECW of Lucha Libre and surprise surprise a guy died off that one it was the famous one that was out there in the news actually at the time was Rey Mysterio's match the match that he was in that a guy died in yeah they had some footage of it It wasn't really too bad you could totally tell your kid that he's just acting like he's tired you just kind of see him draped over the ropes and they don't close in on his face or anything like that they only focused on it for like 30 seconds or less but yeah that was the match one of the matches they showed and then another match a guy lost his match and apparently his identity came along with that and he didn't take well and he died also. You see two guys that are alive through some of the documentary but they don't make it to the end. That's terrible. Yeah. So if they lose their mask and their identity that's pretty much ruined their career right? In the tradition? Yeah I'm not sure how they say that they want to do that type of match. It's like yeah I will put my mask on the line and yes I will lose. If you're, unless you're gonna retire I don't know if that's a good career move. 
Rusev and Lucha Libre. I believe Rey Mysterio and Chris Jericho had a match like that. Yes, they did. Rey somehow got away with it. Went back to the mask once he got to WWE and was no longer a filthy animal. Some people have all the luck. For sure, you can get away with a lot more stuff, I guess, if you're five foot three. We'll just forget over time. Oh, I've seen your face before. I think he kind of goes under the issues. Yeah, he goes under a lot of stuff. I don't think he can ride the rides at Disney. Horrible, horrible short jokes. <laughs> What's new in your neck of the woods, man? Oh, sickness in the house. That's going around. And, uh, yeah, with this weather, I'm surprised everyone's not sick. So far, I hadn't got anything, but yeah, we can't have it 50 degrees one day and then 20 degrees the next. And I expect stuff to start changing and getting people sick. It usually seems to be when most of the damage gets done is during spring when the weather just fluctuates so much. It's been an interesting year for weather so far, that's for sure. But luckily for me, I don't go outside my house unless I I have to, so it's a comfy 73, 74 at all times. Yeah, um, same way. I try not to go out too much unless I have to. It's horrible, horrible. And internet problems. Our new our new takeover spectrum has taken over Time Warner like a bad cancer. And I've had no luck with any kind of support or any kind of anything for the past week and a half. It's been terrible, terrible support, terrible everything. I wish it would just go back to like it was. I had to decide to get rid of my RAID setup that I had originally with my Raptors and just buy a Samsung Evo 850 and call it a day. I've had a couple of reinstalls and reset up. I think I've got it down pat now. Go on the installs for sure. Miserable. You know, having to get those key out, put those product keys in again. It's not not fun. Yeah, someone should invent a website that auto does that for you or something. Let's see what we can do about that. One step at a time, though. Podcast before apps. Podcast before apps. That's all I've got on my neck of the woods, unfortunately. Nothing exciting. Just drama and sickness. But hopefully, hopefully after today, my internet problems will be resolved and I can go back to normal operations. Let's do some territory talk, Jeff. Let's do it. Let's talk May 1984 timeline with territories. Territory. Wrestling territories. And for you youngsters out there, <laughs> wrestling territories is something that may be foreign to you, but at one time in the United States alone, there were 25 or 30 wrestling territories that were headquartered around the country. On this episode of Territory Talk, we're going to do North Carolina and Memphis. Bosley, if you would. Territory Talk, North Carolina. Charlotte was synonymous with the wrestling office founded in 1948 by promoter Jim Crockett Sr., a longtime member of the National Wrestling Alliance. The company known as Jim Crockett Promotions Incorporated introduced the brand name Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling in the early 1970s. JCP was also a promoter of musical and theater productions and owned a minor league baseball team affiliated with the Baltimore Orioles. After the death of Crockett Sr., his son Jim Jr. took over the presidency of the company with assistance from brother David, sister Frances, her husband John Ringley, and wrestler turned booker George Scott, who is credited by most with being the driving creative force behind the company. After Scott left the company in 1981, JCP went through several bookers including Ole Anderson, Dory Funk Jr., and Dusty Rhodes and in 1985, began a national expansion, buying the TBS time slot from Vincent Kennedy McMahon's Titan Sports Incorporated, which had purchased it following a buyout of Georgia Championship Wrestling Incorporated. Somewhere during 1985 to 1986, what was known as Mid-Atlantic became known from that point as the World Championship Wrestling Region, or as by some referred to on as Jim Crockett Promotions, 
which was 1986 to 1989. Good stuff going on in Greensboro and Charlotte, JCP, not to be confused with the Gigolo Clown Posse. Or JCPenney. And birth WCW out of that promotion, pretty much. Love me some WCW. Yeah, same here, except for the later year. That was interesting and fun to watch, for the most part. Next up, Tennessee, a hotbed of wrestling, the Goulas and Welch Wrestling Enterprises, later Goulas Wrestling Enterprises Incorporated, and kind of see where that relationship was going was a successful but notorious low-paying territory. This territory, under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance, promoted shows in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Alabama from the 1940s until 1981. The Middle America Wrestling Promotion was founded in the 1940s by Nick Gulas and Roy Welch and was one of the first promotions to join the NWA after it was founded in 1948. From 1953 until late 1974, John Kanzana promoted the Knoxville area and Joe Gertner promoted the Brigham area from 1940 until some point in the 1970s. In 1977, promoter Jerry Jared and wrestler Jerry Lawler broke away from the NWA Mid-America, breaking the Memphis area off to start on their own under the name Continental Wrestling Association. Mid-America stopped promoting in 1981 when many of the wrestlers in the promotion were upset at Nick Gulas for overbooking Nick's son George Gulas, who wasn't a very good wrestler in the extremely profitable Memphis half of the territory. At this point, Roy Welch retired from the promotion, leaving Nicholas Gulas as the man in charge of a dwindling territory. With Gulas' insistence of pushing his son, Gulas had to close his doors in 1981 and sold the championship to CWA who took over most of the territory and went on to promote some of the championships that were in the NWA Mid-America. Memphis promoter Jerry Jared of the CWA, the Championship Wrestling Association at the time, had a totally different audience, not really wrestling, but wrestling with a comic flair. Of course, this is the promotion that birthed Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler, Feud and Andy Kaufman wrestling women, so that's kind of the flair that they're talking about here. Vince is also here with TV when no one thought he would even try it. Rumors in 1984 were that Vince could sign away Jerry Lawler or Austin Idol. He might have a shot. But otherwise, people would go once and then realize how much fun the regular Mid-South Coliseum shows are in comparison. Running on the strength of a successful live Saturday morning television show, Jarrett Promotions operated well into the late 1980s. Under the C WA promotion. In 1989, Jared bought out Texas promoter Fritz von Erich's WCCW, merging the two into what became the USWA. Eventually, Jared sold the territory back to the von Erichs, continuing to run the Memphis end of the USWA until 1995 when he sold it to a Cleveland, Ohio-based group called XL Sports. The only connection that I really have from Memphis is back in the RF video days in the early 2000s, I have a video tape VHS that has 1980 hardcore matches and RF video was famous for compiling stuff and putting it on one tape at the time DVD burners still weren't widely used so most of the stuff they distributed was VHS. I have a match where it's an empty arena match it's Jerry Lawler versus Terry Funk because they were feuding at the time and it's just Lance Russell doing the call and the commentary to tell you how far back it was Lance Russell was pretty much smoking a cigarette not sure if either wrestler would actually 
come out for this and you can hear him. Well, let's just sit here, boys, and see if anyone's going to show. I don't even know if anyone's going to show up for this. Then you hear Terry Funk screaming, Lawler, come out, and calls him the cool Terry Funk lingo that he always uses, egg-sucking dog, and then Lawler comes out and they fight, and then Terry ends up getting hit in the eye, and that's basically the end of the match. You just go out with Terry saying, my eye, my eye, my eye. Pretty classic match. That's funny. That is funny. Maybe one of these days I'll be able to convert it over and, yeah, maybe we'll put a link out there on our webpage when that happens. The Facebook.com forward slash the Tag Team Podcast. That is the page that I was referring to. Oh, yeah. Bosley, get on it. Are you ready to break down some Tuesday Night Titans? July 3rd edition, pre-July 4th. Always, always, always ready to break it down. Break it down! The intro, Vince McMahon did one of his usual one-liners on Alfred talking about how Mr. Alfred broke into your majesty's bedroom, apparently for some tea, and got Mr. Alfred a little choked up and sidetracked. Took him a couple moments for him to kind of regather his thoughts before they moved on. I, I got a chuckle out of that one. I believe he said he was waiting to see where Vince was going with this. Nowhere. Yeah, pretty much. Vince messes up a lot on this episode, too. He has a bunch of just words that he fumbles. Not used to seeing that on the other three episodes. He messes up on another clip that we'll discuss a little later, but yeah, he kind of gets a little choked up or just loses his train of thought a lot in this episode. Kind of makes you wonder what was going on behind the camera. Yeah, I wonder what vitamins he was taking at the time. This seems to be the longest match that will never die off Tuesday Night Titans. They started off right off the bat with a match of Hulk Hogan and Iron Sheik, but Vince was quick to let us know that Hulk Hogan would be joining us, and this is probably one of the classic lines of this episode. Scheduled to join us momentarily, the incredible Hulk Hogan by way of videotape. Like 90% of the people on this show are away of videotape. I don't know why he felt the need to point that out. That's really weird. Scheduled to join us on this podcast, Vince McMahon, by way of audio clip. Just thought I'd point that out there. They show us the match of Hulk Hogan versus Iron Sheik again. This is the third time I think we've seen it out of four episodes. So there's only been one episode where we weren't graced with its presence. This time we get to pick up a little bit post-production instead of the earlier match where we're picking up mid to finish. So we get to see a little bit more. I think by the end of 1984, we'll get to see the whole match in its entirety. I think that's what they're leading up to. I'm ready to see it. It's teasing me for three episodes. I don't approve. Yeah, I'm not sure where they're going with it. Yes, I know Hulk Hogan faced the Iron Sheik. Yes, I know he broke the camel clutch. Yes, I know he won the title. I know this from the last three episodes. But why they had to show all that again, I don't know. They could have just showed him winning the belt and then go to the back, which seemed to be what this segment was mostly focusing on, the the post-production of the celebration of how he celebrated after he won the title. It was a very interesting clip. Kind of reminded me of basketball where back in the day after they won the NBA title, they'd go to the locker room and you'd see him celebrate with champagne and stuff like that. Unfortunately, they ended up bringing Hulk Hogan's parents back there, which is not something you'd see too often in the pros. But Mean Gene did give us a nice one-liner that I liked. think he could have got to where he got tonight in front of this packed house at Madison Square garden without parents. That was classic because I don't think anyone can get to anywhere without parents. They hadn't made test tube babies back in 84 yet and they weren't allowed to clone so. It's true and I believe before we move on there the uh, the celebration with the champagne I believe I've seen Andre the Giant first and he proceeded to get it all in Hulk's eyes so he was he was really just trying to focus as Mean Gene was talking to him and then I believe Ivan Putsky was next to join the, the champagne promotion and then I believe if I'm not mistaken 
second it was Rocky Johnson, the last one, who got it all over Mean Gene. I was trying to keep up with who who all was back there because I remember, I want to say when the Ultimate Warrior won the belt in the future, like everybody and their mom was there. I was trying to keep track. If there was anybody breaking kayfabe that shouldn't have been there, but everybody lined up. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, they had all those faces in the locker room, but they did have Hulk Hogan do a little kayfabe, and it's not really anything big. He called Andre boss, and they would always say boss to Andre, and Andre would always call people boss. His version of Hey Brother was boss, so he kind of showed a little bit of that, but if you weren't following and didn't know that, you wouldn't even know to listen or look for it, so I can't remember. If, I'm sure there was a third person. I remember Putsky. I remember the giant, but yeah, I don't remember Mystery Man number three. Not sure. Gene did get some on him, and he freaked out, and yeah, Hogan's eyes were burning from the first pour of champagne, and then Putsky comes in and pours some more on it. Such a grand moment. Yes, legendary first championship of Hulk Hogan, and TNT wants you to remember it. But, 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 then they bring in Pete and Ruth, and if it wasn't for Mean Gene, I would just think these were Pete and Ruth, because not only does Mean Gene call them Pete and Ruth, Hulk Hogan also calls them Pete and Ruth. You know some Mean Gene? Pete and Ruth are the people that trained me from the day I could toddle, man, and they're the ones that fed me and made these 24 pythons. This is Pete's belt and Ruth's belt, and we're gonna stand behind it all the way, Daddy. It's USA and Hulkamania running wild. And no, Pete and Ruth are not his pharmacists. They are actually his parents. And I know, Jeff, you probably also, like me, call your parents by their first name and not say mom and dad. Of course, because then nobody would know who the hell I was talking about. If I said mom and dad, they're like, who's that? Especially when they're standing right there beside of you, you would never have to say mom and dad because, I don't know, I just, I'm going to start calling my parents by their first name. I think it's just the assumption you have two older people there with you. I assume that the way he treated them and the way he was so jacked up, I don't think he, I don't know. It seemed like I wouldn't treat my parents like that, I don't guess. No, I don't think I've ever called my parents by their first name either. It was kind of weird and yet very great that I could get two clips out of the same three-minute promo. <laughs> yes. Before we move totally off Hulk Hogan, he does another uh, interview for David Schultz and their upcoming match, and I believe it was either after that they go back to Lord Alfred in studio, and he says something I've never heard in my life. But always bear in mind Hogan is a fantastically scientific wrestler also. I've never heard Hulk Hogan called a scientific wrestler in my life. Um, I second that. I don't think I've ever heard him being referenced as a intelligent or scientific wrestler. But very good call there, Lord Alfred, and drinking the Kool-Aid and telling the audience what Vince wants you to tell them. You also notice what adjective they gave Hulk Hogan there. It wasn't the immortal. No, he was the incredible until Marvel said, eh, don't think you're going to be calling anyone the Incredible Hulk. They kind of ditched that one later on down the road. But for this episode anyway, he was still the Incredible Hulk. Dot 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 dot. Oh, I think Vince would have painted him green and ripped some purple pants if he could have got away with it. Almost oh, definitely. Most definitely. Well, they mention the interview and they go to AWA Return. So this is a pretty special match if you were living in Minnesota at the time. You got two of your former AWA wrestlers that you've heard of now wrestling for a different company but still they're in your hometown you kind of watched them grow and they take us in progress and a jip to Hulk Hogan versus David Schultz and I'll let you describe some of this match because I thought it was pretty hilarious. Yes, Rilla Monsoon and Mean Gene did the play-by-play, covered it up. When we first come to the match we noticed Hogan's busted wide open with the blue square on his face. <laughs> 
Yes, the blue box of doom. When I first seen it, I had to rewind. Yes, VHS users, rewind and play it again because I thought something had happened. And then under it, it says for censorship of TV, we have censored the blood, I suppose. Which you pretty much covered up half his body, so you didn't really know who it was without them calling it out. This was before the red and yellow days, so Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. was not wearing his normal colors. That's true. It was light blue trunks, is that right? Correct. And it appears that the wound started with an iron chair, so there was no disqualifications i guess yeah this seems like the first hardcore match they've shown on tnt and judging by all the juicing and blading and bleeding there is no rules and plenty of blood and i did notice that hulk did something that all the other wrestlers will follow suit as we go through this podcast and go through this episode but i'll save it for later to see if you caught the same thing i did oh i think i know exactly what you're talking about but yeah we'll touch on it on the second time it happened the the theme for this edition Besides our red, white, and blue box theme that we got going on. This was the red and the blue for sure. We had the red blood and we had the blue box. We'll get down to the other stuff later. Yeah, that blue box was definitely okay. Well, I'd like to see the FCC guidelines for back then because I obviously close-ups, I noticed the blue box, but sometimes they showed Hogan's face. You could still see all the blood, so I'm guessing you had to be within some certain amount of feet range. Couldn't focus on it for more than X amount of seconds without having some kind of sensor up. It's the only thing I could gather from from it. I was just confused. I really thought they were having production problems when I first seen it. Then I had to pull up the YouTube version. I was like, oh, it's the same. And then the censorship little warning at the bottom come out. And as we move on from the blue box, which is hard to do, <laughs> Dr. D does go up to the top rope for his spinning elbow finisher. And apparently it's a mistake because once he comes up from the elbow finishers, he does take time to admire his crowd. And I think that's where he messed up when he only got a two count. And Holt once again kicks out of another finisher. But he does it with prejudice, it appears, because he launches Dr. D halfway across the (laughs) ring when he does finally kick out. There's a couple of counts that could have been three counts and Hulk Hogan, I guess, kind of goes a little heel in this and pulls up his opponent before the ref can get to three, sort of like you'd see a heel do whenever they're wrestling someone and they're beating the snot out of them and they can obviously get the three count and he picks them up so he can start beating on them some more. Hogan does that at least twice in this match and even throws Gorilla Monsoon off one time. He's like, oh, I think he's going after him now. He's going to end up pinning him. Wait, Hogan says no, no. He's not done. I believe one of the comments was do you see what Dr. D's done to Hulk? Hulk's just getting him back. Yeah, that's it. Tell that to the blue boss on the screen. So Hulk did drop the famous leg on Dr. D and he does pull him up for the three count yep. and he proceeds to then bite him, I guess out of anger and frustration and then that's when Hulk starts to gain the upper hand and he throws him into the ropes, gets him down on the mat and then drops the elbow. He goes for the pin and another two count from Dr. D. That's the one that got Gorilla Mon soon <laughs> and then he proceeds to toss mr dr d outside of the ropes onto the floor and then it gets dirty yep and then he throws him into the post we see dr d go for something and all of a sudden he comes up bloody so we can only imagine that he was gigging himself in that time frame because he came pretty bloody from a post and i do believe it's a two count he does throw him up on his shoulders and smash him the first time and then before he decides to throw him back into the ring i think he introduces him to the post one more time yeah correct you know and just icing on the cake. One botch in this match, too. Hulk Hogan comes up after a two count and then misses with a boot. He just totally misses Dr. D. He was trying to do a boot to him when he was on the ropes and he was like a foot shy. So yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. What I did like, though, is Dr. D, he didn't sell the boot. No, you can't sell a miss like that. I honestly don't even think he saw it, to be honest with you. <laughs> 
blood got in his eyes. I think it was when this Hulk was so excited, you know, obviously from his interview, he was so excited wrestling. I think he just threw it wildly out of there. Yep. No sell for Dr. D, but he did end up losing the match to Hulk Hogan. Go figure. I think it was a run and clothesline. Yeah, it wasn't the actual uh, leg drop like we're used to seeing because he pulled him up off that and then, yeah, the match a different way for a change. That was refreshing to see, even though he uh, wasted his leg drop uh, pulling him up instead of just doing the one, two, three and letting it be. Who knows? Maybe that was his famous finisher in the AWA days. I hadn't seen any Hulk Hogan AWA matches. So after that match, we end up going back to studio for our second week in a row karaoke time with Paul Vachon, Luna Vachon's uncle. You remember her from the mid to late 90s, one of the only female wrestlers at the time, pre-Sable and pre-Jackie and pre-everybody, really. She had a shaved head and tattoos on the side of her head. Well, I shouldn't say a shaved head. She had a huge mohawk that went down to long hair, and then but her sides of her head was shaved completely bald. And she had the tattoo, I think it was flames, a little bit like Bam Bam. That was Goldust's manager after the breakup, right? Yeah, I believe she managed Goldust some. I think she came in, and I want to say, with Gangrel also, but it's hard to remember all the people she was with. She had a little bit of a run. She was the first woman in a video game. I know that. She was in the Raw, Sega, Genesis, and I believe the Super Nintendo also version of Raw that came out. Only women wrestler in a video game back then for WWF. So she was really the start of the revolution. Yeah, she don't get any ado. I don't think she's in the Hall of Fame. I could be totally wrong. It's hard to remember all the people they put in there, but to my knowledge, I don't think she's in there. Maybe next round. No, I think you're right. So her uncle, the butcher, Paul Vachon, comes out, talks about his hidden talent, and I noticed and I want the WWF belt buckle he had. That was pretty awesome. I did notice that. I did like that. I was listening to the interview and I did one thing kind of set out from me that he was in a house of 13 brothers and sisters. I think it was a 7 to 5 ratio. And when he first come out, let me go back a second, and he first meets Vince and Alfred. They told him that, hey, you're going to come to TNT and you were going to meet Vince McMahon and the Lord. And he makes a joke saying, well, I'm not ready for the Lord. Yeah. We had a quiet chuckle. Yeah, it seems a few of the wrestlers call Lord Alfred the Lord. I noticed Don Morocco did it last week, and I believe there was another one out there that also called him that. Yeah, you don't hear it on too many other things. They always say Lord Alfred Hayes. I like the Lord. I would keep that name. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm going to start calling Bosley that. The Lord. I like it. So we find out that within the 7 to 5 ratio of brothers and sisters that they didn't have a lot of money and they grew up pretty poor. But there was nothing to do, really, but to sing. I guess they sung to each other or they went out in the yard and sang to the neighbors. I wasn't sure. Christmas may have been interesting. I've seen all those musicals. He didn't give too many details. So he does decide to sing a number. Seems to be a theme so far with all the WWF Titans. Yeah, I liked how it started up. Vince, what are we going to hear, Paul? Just start singing. It's like, yeah, whatever, old man. I got this today. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. This is good. <laughs> Oldie but a classic. Everyone knows this one. Starts singing something in French and then towards the end, it either he redoes the whole song in English or just a verse in English, so I have no idea. Yeah, I was really surprised how well he sung. Oh yeah, just loops around Putsky. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. That was surprising. Like you said, for a 300 pound man, he has some chords on him. And no symbols were harmed in the making of his singing. For his angry and as aggressive as he looks, he's a very gentle person. How do you think they decide which clips to play from wrestlers' matches when they have on there? This was a very interesting match that they went to after him singing. I guess they thought maybe he could sing. (laughs) 
<laughs> he can sing. That'll get people over, and he'll never watch this show. He's on it right now. It, it wouldn't have been my choice of a clip, I have to tell you. No. Or maybe cut it short, one of the two. Yeah, I wouldn't have came on the show if I knew this was the clip they were going to play. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. The aforementioned clip that we're talking about is they go to a match, and it's Paul Vashon versus Jimmy Snuka. And on call, we got Mean Gene and Vince. And I got to go into this for the second week in a row. Well, I shouldn't say second. For the third week in a row. Did you notice anything about this match, Jeff? Besides it was short as all get out? We had another moment of silence. So let me play this great clip from Vince McMahon, the greatest commentator in the world. Professional commentator Vince McMahon, everybody. Well, they did a good job. I don't guess I noticed that. Yeah, they they weren't in a head scissors, so in a way they did a good job is the fact that you were actually more engaged in the action, but in another way they did a bad job because they missed all kinds of spots. You heard the slaps on there from some flare chops, the stomps on there from some kicking and punching, but yeah, there's nothing went called on that whatsoever. I was at twenty seven thirty four to twenty eight fifteen, approximately about forty seconds of dead air. Well, they got me on that one. He didn't fool me. I'm always looking out for Vince. <laughs> Would you like to say who won this match? Because, I mean, Paul Vachon's on the show. Paul Vachon has a hidden talent. Obviously, Paul Vachon won the match. You know, with the way it started off, with the very smooth and easy color no bow tie, and then Paul, in the beginning, delivered that nice soft right to Snooka, and then the way he, you know, raked the eyes, raked the back of Snooka, I thought this is going to go perfect. And he even, he even bit him for good measure. Damn, the champion must be rubbing off. See, people's watching the champion. But anyway, <laughs> then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, Snooka jumps up and smacks him with a headbutt. And then he climbs to the top. And I thought, oh no, this is the end. This is it right here. And sure enough, flying headbutt. And then one, two, three. That was the game. I believe that's the first time they put a guest in a losing match just to display their, their ring character. This is them as a personality. Yeah, that is definitely the first time the TNT's had a guy on the show and then, haha, you lost. I did notice a little botch there on one of the jumps that Snooker does his knee it barely hits Vashon and Vashon's like half up like about to get up and then Snooker's knee catches him barely on like the top of his head not even on his forehead or anything a little bit of a botch there good catch on that one I did not catch that have to replay that match next up we have more Snooker talk it's the mailbag segment the mailbag segment my favorite segment and actually the mailbag this time actually smacks Alfred in the leg I had to slow it down and watch it bit by bit because I noticed his reaction was a little different than the other. Oh, God, it scared me. And he did say he's going to take care of that mailman next time. And he did ask to see if WWF had a dog. Only hope that this feud continues inside of a steel cage towards the end of the run of Tuesday Night Titans. Lord Alfred versus Mailman. Please make that happen. Though for questions, they do 300% more than they did last week. They have three questions back to three instead of just one. The first one was Jimmy Snuka to get a title shot. 
I wanted to know if Snooker was in line to get a title shot. Vince thinks he is and Superfly would look forward to it. So I would think so too if I was in line for a title shot. But I also would look forward to that title shot. I think he would be deserving of a title shot at that time as well. I do. I second that. The man took a coconut to the head then came on Tuesday Night Titans to babble about it. Give that man a title shot. I think he was still feeling the effects of the coconut. I think that's why I botched the finish on that match. Oh yeah. You're seeing triple Paul Vachon. Well he does have a twin brother which we'll bring him up. Yes. If he ain't a twin he's pretty close. Sean Mania running wild on this episode of TNT. Next up they ask about Red Batskin. Where he is? Is he still a wrestler? And the person that wrote in's mother said he was handsome. They wanted to know if they had ever seen any ma- old matches of him on TNT. Then says there would be an airing some footage of him in the future. Says he's currently in California and uses his experience as a special guest referee. And Lord Alfred then chimed in and wanted to know if he's still as good looking as the mom remembers. Then says he would let the mom be the judge. So I'm sure you know all about Red Basting, right? The famous Red Basting? Oh yeah, almost definitely. Yeah, I'm sure all the listeners do also. So next we'll go on to th- just kidding. We're gonna go to Lord Bosley. Roland Red Bastion. Red Bastion took part in football and swimming in high school and broke in on Midwest carnivals, fighting local toughs and learning wrestling the hard way. Turning professional, he began in Chicago and toured the United States with great success. Bastion was small for a wrestler at 185 pounds, but he was quick, vigorous, fast and employed a wide assortment of aerial moves. His teachers were Henry Collin, Inner Olson, Joe Pazendak, and Vern Gonia, and his peak years were from 1959 to 1971. His favorite finishing moves were the drop kick, flying head scissors, atomic drop and abdominal stretch. Bastion teamed up with Lou Klein to form the Bastion Brothers Tag Team and, in 1960, won the United States Tag Team Championship from Eddie and Jerry Graham in April 1960. They won the title twice more, from the Grahams and then from the fabulous Kangaroos, Roy Heffernan and Al Costello. Bastion went on to win several more Tag Team Championships. Bastion was the frequent tag team partner of Billy Red Leon. The duo unmasked wrestler Don Jardine in 1972. Bastion was the booker in Dallas. In 1964, Baystein appeared in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and teamed briefly with champion Bruno Sammartino. He returned for one match in Madison Square Garden in June 1970, his last appearance there being pinned by Professor Tanaka but, prior to that, putting on an amazing performance, dominating most of the match. He had a hot main event run in Florida in the late 1960s, including memorable bouts with Johnny Valentine. In his retirement, Bastion became a trainer and a promoter, and discovered future wrestlers Steve, Sting, Borden and Jim, the Ultimate Warrior, Hell we got a gold gym and convinced them to become professional wrestlers. Bastion and professional wrestling manager Rick Bassman formed an alliance of wrestlers called Power Team USA, of which Borden and Hellwig were a part. The team debuted in November 1985, and after the other two members left the group, 
Borden and Helwig continued to tag together. Without Red Baston, Jeff would have no Thunderdome match. Bless him, bless him. And let's hope he's as handsome still. For Alfred's sake. And that woman that's probably dead by now. Yes, most definitely. So the third question was referencing Sergeant Slaughter and Big John Studd. And they wanted to know who was older. And also, was John Studd born in L.A.? Oh, and there was a $10 bet. And Vince makes fun of that $10, too. I guess he was living it up even then. Exactly, $10 to Vince is nothing. He must wipe his tears with $10, I guess. But I did some research on it, and he said John Studd was from L.A., which he's not. He is from Butler, Pennsylvania. That's where he was born. Oh, he said from, though. Let's catch. Oh. I am from Florida. I was born in North Carolina. That's true. Vince didn't break kayfabe, but yeah, he kind of told a white lie in a way. I guess uh, Hulk Hogan being from Florida, but not really from Florida. I guess it's the same thing. But yeah, he was actually born in Pennsylvania, and Big John Studd was born February 19th. 1948 and Sergeant Slaughter was born August 27th 1948 and I believe if my math is correct that's five months and eight days older than Sergeant Slaughter or there's always Vince's answer of John Studs from LA doesn't know who's younger says regardless of the two they're great competitors in the WWF today in other words I don't know next up they go to a guest in studio and it's Gorilla Monsoon and they play him on with some music since we have a piano there and a guy on drums might as well make the most of it and use it as much as possible because this is Vince's money that we're talking about. No penny left unturned. They have Gorilla Monsoon come on and right off the bat he starts sucking up to Vince. He says for the quality of TNT and the WWF. Nice quality on both. And there hasn't been nothing better since the Greek gods created wrestling first. I thought that was an interesting line to use. Oh, Gorilla Monsoon's one of a kind. That's an understatement. And then he goes on to talk about him going to Russia and drawing only $4 a day while over there. And interesting enough, he says that originally he was, wasn't actually a wrestling fan. He was actually an English teacher and they had called him up to ask him if he wanted to wrestle professionally. Well, that was an interesting fact. Yeah, a lot of the wrestlers, either after their careers or some during their careers, seem to like to teach. You have uh, Tito Santana, you got Georgie Animal Steel, you got Gorilla Monsoon. Another one that comes to mind more recent is Spike Dudley. All were teachers. Kind of weird. Spike Dudley a teacher. Yeah, he kind of the only one that kind of looks like he'd be a teacher. He wasn't that big of a wrestler. If it wasn't for his ECW fame, he probably would have never got into the WWF. Would have fooled me. They also comment how quick Gorilla Monsoon was for 401 pounds. I didn't see that in the upcoming match. Yeah, he just returned suck up for sucking up to Vince earlier. Then he got his start from Frank Tunney, which goes back to last week's episode of Jack Tunney, new president of WWF Titans Toronto used to be up in that promotion the Toronto Territory that was Jack's uncle was Frank a little bit of a callback there and the clip they show is Gorilla Monsoon versus Baron Mini Sakula sounds right and it appears that it's just Vince Solo on this one maybe Gorilla Monsoon was supposed to be doing commentary and then Vince realized oh wait he's up in the ring oh well I got this or maybe that was the match where Vince finally got in front of the camera to actually do commentary where his dad said nope you're going could possibly be this was definitely in the 70s so they told us later on that it was from 1977 and it was in Philadelphia and the significance of this match was didn't matter who he was wrestling because it was kind of just a blowout they did like three moves maybe and then he tosses him out and Baron goes out and I think he was supposed to hit the famous person in the audience but he really doesn't hit him but the famous person doesn't 
really know too much about what was going on, it seemed like, as far as when he was supposed to jump in, so they just kind of went with it. So the famous person is recently passed. He was known as the greatest of all time, and it was Muhammad Ali. It's into wrestling. Yes, when the when they first panned to the match, and they panned to Muhammad Ali, he does look really confused whether he's supposed to wave or stand up, almost like he's waiting for a cue. Exactly. Didn't really know what was going on. During the match, what I noticed, the great gorilla monsoon slaps. He don't punch. He didn't really throw a punch. He wasn't bobbing and weaving. You know, he just threw a slap. He reminded me a lot of Andre, the way he would just slap. Yeah. Chop, I guess you could say. And then, as you said, he does throw, throws Baron out. And then Ali decides, hey, it's my turn. Yeah. (laughs) I guess this is where I go in. He came close (laughs) enough to my shoes. I'm going in and act like he hit me. Gorilla monsoon does a chop to Cecilia. And that's how he goes out of the ring. Some chop. Ali, he, you know, dramatic starts taking everything off and crawls in there. Yeah, takes off his jacket, his tie, his shirt, and then once he gets inside the ring, takes off his shoes. Guess he thought he was in line for a Fuji Japanese custom match and was just waiting around. Monsoon didn't look like he was ready to serve, but I did notice that, you know, going around and around, uh, Monsoon and Ali, they swap some jabs, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, nothing crazy, and you notice Ali backs up a little bit and starts pointing at Monsoon, and when he did, Monsoon picked him up, but then proceeds to do the helicopter spin, and then right as Gorilla Monsoon's just able enough to put him down on the mat before they both fall over because they are dizzy. (laughs) Ali then promptly escapes the ring. Dumps him as softly as possible to not hurt a million dollar man suit or anything. Yeah, it was really comical to watch him just kind of ease him down off his shoulders and throw him up and let him just hit on the mat. Yeah, you're right. Once Muhammad Ali got down, he rolled out and hightailed it, not even out of the ring. He went out of the building. Mm -hmm. Then the best time to interview people, as we're learning with Raw, is right after they have any type of match, especially the big guys that get blown up a lot easier than the small guys. So Vince proceeds to interview Gorilla Monsoon as he's huffing and puffing and telling him about how Ali doesn't know a wrist lock from a wristwatch, and he's a great boxer, but a terrible wrestler. And we notice that wrestlers are some of the top athletes, and that a regular athlete cannot keep up with the actual wrestler. And boxers do not belong in the same ring with the wrestler as he proved as he airplane spun him out of the ring. Yeah, this pretty much is in lieu, I guess, to get Muhammad Ali some kind of, just, I guess, ring sense. Hopefully he got better when he faced uh, Anaki. I got his last name, the Japanese wrestler, though. He was faced, supposed to face him over in Japan, boxer versus wrestler. But I think this was kind of a pre-set up for that, just to get him comfortable with, I guess, rings and things of that nature, crowds. I don't really know how that Muhammad Ali-Anaki match went, but I remember that that's uh, something that was going on around this time frame. Well, if it was anything like the monsoon, we know. It was a quick little play softly, and then uh, no one no one got counted out, no one got hurt. Win-win, everyone wins. Good match. Good match for Baron, real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Two couple chops, thrown out the ring, he's in, he's in the car ready to go to the next show. I wonder if you got a full paycheck out of that. I doubt it. Next up, we have the aforementioned Captain Lou comes out to some booze. We got the production staff back on the set so they can act like an audience. And he comes out with some flip-flops, a spitting can, a half-unbuttoned shirt, and they starts acting like a slob. 
He prefers money over popularity, and he burps. That's what I got out of the beginning segment there, and Vince making fun of him and questioning his background. Uh, yeah, very rude. Doesn't seem to care. Uh, doesn't want to shake your hand. Doesn't want to shake Vince's hand. Doesn't want to shake Frodo's hand over there. He just wants to make money. That's all he cares about. He cares about the green. And then I believe he observes the piano, because I think Vince McMahon was getting on to him about the lack of talents uh, that he possesses. And then he proceeds over to the piano. Yeah, it says his mom was a musician and that he was good too. And Vince kind of questions it. And him and Lord Alfred Hayes crack on him the whole time he's over there. He questioned whether the bench will support his weight. The piano bench actually does hold Lou's weight without any problem. He goes on to hit two keys like he's testing the tune of the piano. And Vince and Lord Alfred say, good job, great song, Lou, great song. So they're still cracking on him. He does play the song our good friend Paul sung earlier, which I believe he was able to maybe play by ear. Yeah, it sounded like he was probably doing it by ear because that was the exact song he played. I mean, out of all the songs and all the ones out there, that's the one he chose to play. Kind of weird. And so it's a nice thing that some people can do. My mom can do it. I have no talent whatsoever when it comes to playing a piano by ear or by reading music. She hears a song three times or so. She can usually play it successfully on the third try or so. Yep, got me beat. Can't play if you paid me. If I took instructions, I still won't be able to play. So Lou ends up impressing Lord Alfred and Vince with his piano skills. And then he goes back to the couch and kind of brags a little bit about it and then starts talking about Lopper. And that fades into a clip of him on Piper's Pit showing off Cindy's award saying how he helped her get a gold record, cover of this magazine, the cover of that magazine. Piper seems to be impressed and wants to know if he could get Cindy on his show. And he says sure. And then we go into another clip of Piper with Cindy Lopper being on the show. And that was kind of a funny clip in the beginning there. He talks about where she's been touring at and he kind of repeats stuff back and then he kind of adds stuff. He says London, England. You've been in London, England. Where- London, England, same thing. London, England, this kind of pairs it back to her. Yeah, that was kind of funny how they left that in there or didn't try to acknowledge that that's not what he didn't say. That said twice. Yeah, I thought he felt maybe belittled by her. I bet he did because, yeah, 84 women still weren't uh, really on the same par. They were making a lot less than a man, and now they just make a little bit less than a man. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't like being called out by a woman there on his stage, especially a woman that wasn't in the wrestling business. She then proceeds to uh, talk about Lou, but he kind of conversates and uh, tell me how Lou did this for you and did this and made you famous during this and this and this. And then that kind of sets up Captain Lou coming out there and then agging her on by telling her to say this, this, and what about this. And that kind of starts getting her into, I guess you could say, Cindy Lopper rage. Telling how, how, how women, Cindy, belong in a kitchen and pregnant, Cindy, that no woman's ever accomplished anything without a man behind her. Cindy, tell him that. Wait, 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 wait. Lou, you know, I don't like that. You're only fooling around, right? Because I don't no. like that stuff. She was enraged. Oh, she was getting, she's getting warmed up. Well, she's a little volcano. Yep, we go from, I don't like that, to purse swinging, shoving. Flipping desks. Unneeded anger. That's what that was. That was housewives of whatever before housewives of whatever. Flipping tables. Swinging that little purse, that little hand purse. Might have had a brick in it. I know how ladies of wrestling used to carry bricks in their purses back then. Oh, yeah, definitely. If you notice, as Dave 
wolf uh, intervenes and finally was is able to grab on to Cindy to get her out of there after she smacks Lou in the back of the head and Lou backs off. Piper sort of steps in and Lopper gets a nice little, I believe it's a right hook and actually catches him either on the side of the jaw or on the front of the jaw. And then that's when Dave picks her up and then promptly they leave. She also got a piece of the microphone. I looked there and broke off their little insignia WWF box thing around it as Piper looks at that also. That's a way to make an exit there. Hey, that's what you get. That's with musicians. Mm-hmm. But next they go to David Wolf coming on set to set the record straight about Lou's actual role in Cindy Lauper's music career and video. And this ends up turning into uh, some footage of Piper uh, rolling out a clip, I guess, at Lou's house. We didn't really couldn't tell where he was at, but it looked like Lou was very comfortable where he was at, that's for sure. And he had his potato chips with him, and some actually made it into his mouth. Most looked like were on his stomach. Yes, the demeanor and the conditions, we'll say, of the area they were both in. It did appear that he was at one of Lou's many, many fine establishments. Lou's house had ever been called that before, but yeah, <laughs> he would like that. Then they go to a clip inside of a clip, and it's a clip of Roddy Roddy Piper at the studio. And would you like to set the, a visual of this? Yes, most definitely. It's a little room, not much room for anything, and you have these four people with sunglasses inside. Not really sure why they have sunglasses. Maybe it's the look. I'm pretty sure it wasn't that bright in there. Also, we have Roddy Piper coming in with his microphone from the Piper's Pit, and I'm pretty sure it was not plugged in either. Might have been a really extremely long cord running from LA to Stanford or MSG or plugged in back at Vince's office, maybe. It's possible, but it did no good. They're either doing a sunglass commercial or maybe a extra free gum commercial because all four members were also chewing gum, and that's exactly what you should do when you're about to talk on a promo is chew gum as you talk. Extra gum. I was always a double mint guy. I digress. There's no twins in this one, so I know for <laughs> a fact that it was not a double mint commercial. Touche. We're all were chewing gum and wearing sunglasses, so it's like someone's bright idea. Okay, for this one, we should all put our sunglasses on and chew gum, and we will look so cool. And they so did. That's exactly <laughs> what they did. Yeah. They did not disappoint exactly what they did. And then we set up the big challenge, the lobber challenge of 84. He knows nothing about music. Nothing at all. But you know what? I'm going to show him that he knows nothing about music, and he knows even more it's about That was a great challenge because if you want to teach somebody that they know nothing about music, you need to go out and get your own wrestler and have them fight their wrestler. And that for sure will teach them that they know nothing about music. I concur. Musician logic, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's sort of the, you're going to come over here and attempt to think you know music business. Well, I'm going to come in your town and show you you don't know nothing about your own business. But I'm not going to wrestle because I'm a celebrity. I'm going to hire someone to wrestle for me. That'll teach you. 
got money and power, hey, it don't matter. After the challenge is issued, we go back to David Wolfen's studio. And then Tuesday Night Titans turns into 1990s Jerry Springer. Think you're going to kick his butt? Kick his butt? You know, he taught Cindy something. He taught her the peg principle. Well, we're going to show him the bad principle. We're going to show him that he's going to get beaten, annihilated, and destroyed. And yes, we're going to kick his no, butt. No, what? what? No, what? You and that little whip, that lousy liar, that snake Cindy Lauper. Get out of here, you. You and that Cindy Lauper. Come on. You're going to do what to me. You're going to do what to me. Come on. Would you please? storming the stage and attacking David Wolf while he's on the stage of Tuesday Night Titans and security having to be called in. And security back in 84 was apparently one black guy and that was it. So that's all they needed. They didn't need 20 guys like Triple H. Just one man. One man gang. Yeah, I did like even after the attack and after the many threats that David still hung in there and pretty much said you know what? We could sue him and we could wait for years going to court but we're just going to beat him at his own game and wrestling. That's the way you handle disputes. Beat him and wrestle. Yeah, before they got separated you could hear kind of off mic, but you could still kind of hear it if you go back and listen to it. He gets an A word out there and calls him an ass. Oh. And yeah, total FCC regulations right there seems to be the other theme for this episode is being sued by people for saying stuff that's not entirely true. Huh, well. So I'm wondering what the fine was for that for Vince, for that little slippage, or even maybe they didn't catch it. I don't know. Oh, I'm surprised the little blue box didn't come trailing. <laughs> Yeah, right over him. Censored. So after the A-word drops and he says he's not going to sue and backs up Cindy's challenge pretty much, we get treated by Terry Daniels. And Terry Daniels comes out on stage and full military guard, so I need to apologize. Apparently he was actually in the military and isn't just known for his Ronald McDonald boots, at least not when he's out there on Tuesday Night Titans. Within the first 17 seconds, he ends up uh, going heel against the whole Marine Corps with this little nice comment after Vince asked him a question. As the first inductee into Sergeant Slaughter's Corporal Corps, what does that mean to, to you? Well, it means a whole lot to me, uh, Mr. McMahon, because it's, it's a great privilege to serve in the Marines, but it's even a greater privilege to serve in the Cobra Corps. Serving in the Marines is nothing, but serving in the Cobra Corps, that's an even greater privilege that only two people have ever done. Is that the few and the proud, right? No, that's the Marines. Ah. The Cobra Corps is the even fewer and the even prouder. Gotcha. Gotcha. I always get those confused for some reason. Yeah, I'm sure there were some vets that probably didn't like to hear that on July 3rd back in 1984, that the Cobra Corps was even better than the Marines. So keep those angry letters coming. Coming next week's mailbag segment should be a doozy. Can't wait. After they clear everything up about how great the Cobra Corps is compared to the Marines, they go to show some footage of Terry doing some of his best work ever. And it would be still in uniform and being Sergeant Slaughter's flag boy. And that's what the now. He goes out there carrying the flag and that's about all he does that we see in this match. It ends up being Sergeant Slaughter coming out to the ring with 
Terry Daniels coming out with the flag and as Vince would say on call with Mean Gene that he came out to a standing ovation but it was kind of a standing ovation in progress as the cameraman slipped up and showed Slaughter trying to get people to stand up. He was the hype guy for Vince McMahon. You don't see too many people nowadays hyping their own crowd. No, for sure. That's dedication. I'm going to tell you that right now. Nobody else does that. Also, while we're on the subject of copyright laws, I believe the wrestler's name is Tiger Chun-Li. Yes, that is correct. That's who they said he faced. We didn't actually watch him face. I guess they had a match and it just wasn't just to show off corporate core member Terry Daniels. Uh, Street Fighter 2, Capcom, get on this. Get your copyrights back. Maybe this episode inspired them, the character. They were such huge corporate core fans that they had to do it against the first opponent that Terry Daniels apparently waved flag in front of. I don't know. At least we know Capcom was smart enough not to call any guys Terry Daniels. Oh, definitely. I just feel sorry for the real Terry Daniels. That'd be hideous to be named after him. Yeah. He's a great member of the Cobra Corps and best flag carrier of all time. But after this match that we never see get started, I and mean, we have to just assume that Tiger Chung Lee won because we all know what he can do, that they go back to the studio and we see Terry Daniels and Vince talking about a little field trip that Terry Daniels went on according to Vince. Recently you took a rather unusual trip over to the Statue of Liberty with the Sarge, did you not? Uh, no, sir, I didn't have a chance to go, but Sergeant Slaughter went over with me in mind, and uh, he took uh, my pride along with him. I got two theories on this clip that comes up. One, Vince thought the little 10-year-old kid in the background with the flag was Terry Daniels because he had a flag and he looked like Terry Daniels. And two, I like to think why this whole thing is playing out with America the Beautiful in the background. We don't hear any talking whatsoever. That Sergeant Slaughter is looking for Terry Daniels and also thinks that he should be there. And Slaughter's going around asking some people if they've seen him. Comes across some kids and he doesn't have a picture of Terry so the kids give him some paper and Slaughter quickly sketches out what Terry Daniels looks like and tells him to go find this guy if they can find him and that's what Slaughter's actually doing at the Statue of Liberty is trying to find Terry Daniels the whole time. Go Cobra Corps. That's all I know to say. Apparently Cobra Corps means you do not have to go with Slaughter everywhere. You can sometimes just be there with your pride and your mind and you're good to go. Um, No field trips. No special treatment I guess. I guess you're, you're just stuck with the flag. I think Terry Daniels wasn't allowed to go. His, his mom didn't sign his permission slip for him to be able to go so he had to stay back. Of course with those comments he made about the Marines is probably the best thing for him. Yeah, they probably would have been waiting for him at the Statue of Liberty. We do see some kids out there chanting after Slaughter has to encourage them to, to chant USA and then forces them all to say the Pledge of Allegiance to prove they're Americans and not immigrants and then gets them to say it louder to make sure no one's stumbling. Then we just fade out and we go to footage of Paul's brother, Matt Fashan, and his dad. And basically, I don't know the whole point of this footage, to be exact. It looked like they were just advertising that, hey, look at Mad Vashon. He got a huge pop when he went back to Minnesota. As we saw, none of the mad. I don't know if he won, lost, what happened. Just saw basically the entrance and a little bit of his opponent, Buddy Cole. The thing that stood out the most to me is Vince decided to honor the troops twice in this episode with another moment of silence. And this time, he'd get Mean Gene to do it. Piece of the action!
dog Rashad brought into so I'm not really sure what all happened there. I can kind of hear Gorilla Monsoon in the background. He's probably yelling. The mic's not working, so it's picking up uh, something. But it's kind of funny that they had two in one episode here. I'm looking forward to episode five to hear maybe three moments of silence and one episode of Tuesday Night Titans. Gotta go for records here. Yeah, I'm not really sure if they were having audio problem at those live events. You know, theoretically, you wouldn't think they would leave that much idle noise there. But then again. Yeah, Buddy Colton. Uh, Pearl harboring Mad Vashon, as Gorilla Monsoon would say. So another moment to the troops to honor them and help them remember Pearl Harbor on this very special day. And just like his brother, he has the right to the eyes, right to the face, and he also bites. Underlining theme for this episode, bites. I don't approve. And the lawsuits that probably racked up afterwards, we probably had some good paperwork being pushed the next day on office there in Stamford, Connecticut. I think that's cause and effect. Yep, besides all the bites, we got no gyps, no short little matches as far as a bunch all of back to back to back to back. We did have some spread out, but we had stuff in between them. Did you notice anything else on this episode? I think uh, off the air you're telling me something about Paul Vachon and the discrepancy between YouTube and the network. One thing I did notice was whenever the Paul Vachon and Jimmy Snooker match come back to the studio, they had Paul and Vince actually singing a song. It's only on the YouTube version, not on the WWE version version and if you do watch the youtube version you will know why it's only on the youtube version it seems like most of the youtube versions that are out there were cut from the 24 7 wwe network on demand that came out in 2007 coverage was a little bit before the network but it was still good quality and not the original quality that aired it's interesting to see that they changed the format or cut that out within the seven year time span of when they showed it on there compared to the network probably helps somebody keep their job or maybe get a better bonus from Vince at the end of the year. Oh yeah, or keep their job anyway, like you say. We got a special day coming up, and we're currently in July 3rd, land in 1984, and before the next episode of Tuesday Night Titans, which is going in two weeks, we're going to come by Saturday, July 14th, 1984. Do you happen to know anything on that Saturday that might have happened? I do know that Friday the 13th was before that, and they did release Friday the 13th, the movie, and not only enough, they did release a Saturday the 14th movie, if you didn't know. And on that Saturday, it's not a shopping day like Black Friday, but it is also known as Black Saturday. And if you were in the Georgia Championship Wrestling region, where they would show that on your local television station, you were probably also wondering what the heck happened to your favorite program and TV show, and probably dropped a few... At the TV whenever you were watching it, because this was not the format that you were used to. Tune in. I think we should probably talk about that next week and kind of take a lesson from Tuesday Night Titans and maybe break our own little format and cover this next week. Discuss the reverence of the timeline, what it meant to the, the scene back in 1984, and basically just review the show in general. Yeah, let's cover something different. So next week, tune in for Saturday, July 14th, 1984, a.k.a. Black saturday and we'll definitely be covering that and we'll break format for a week and then just like tuesday night titans two weeks later we'll come back and we'll do tuesday night titans let's do it it should be interesting something to change up we might learn something if nothing else we'll get to compare 1984 television against 1984 television and have some different perspective of tuesday night titans versus this other show that's out there awesome can't wait to do it so coming in two weeks on tuesday night titans they're episode five and just uh 
uh, keep with format, we'll say our episode five will count next week as a special edition. It's going to be Rowdy Piper, but we'll get to see the Rowdy one again. We'll get to see Greg Valentine, first time appearance on Tuesday Night Titans, and first time appearance of Whitney Richter. And at this time, it would be the first woman wrestler that they've had on Tuesday Night Titans. Air quotes on woman wrestler. Not a diva. Nope. But it should be interesting to see how all that goes down. There could be some other people on here. They're not too descriptive on these network previews that they give us. So we know those three people will be on next episode of Tuesday Night Titans. I'll be curious to see how much they bring up the Cindy Lauper and Lou Albano feud if they keep it going or if they just quit until then because I believe it's quite a while before it even sparks up anything. The match does not come to a final conclusion until WrestleMania 1 which happens almost a year into 1985. It happens in March so we're just a little bit under a year before this comes to a conclusion. It'll also probably tell us a little bit of how far forward they taped. I would think even if they did tape recently as long as this episode came right after the original episode before they would still know we gotta keep on having Piper keep this indie talk going because she's a big star right now and that would help our ratings. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe this episode was taped before the other one aired and they weren't smart enough to figure out that people like to hear about pop stars and things of that nature besides just wrestling. What do you want? You keep touching my leg. Everybody, thank you for listening. Follow us on our social medias. The Facebook.com forward slash the Tag Team Podcast. We'll have plenty of links out there for this episode. You'll get to see the difference between WWE Network and WWE On Demand coverage of Vince and singing. Make sure to tell your friends to download. Tell your family to download. Tell your friends of your family to download. Download on multiple devices. And until next week. Follow us on social media. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Tag Team Podcast. On Twitter, at Tag Team Podcast. On Google Plus, the Tag Team Podcast. Email us, at the Tag Team Podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail on the tagline. 6016544 tag that's 6016544824. You can also listen on SoundCloud by searching the Tag Team Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Tag Team Podcast. Join Jeff and John next week on a special edition to break down July 14th, 1984 Black Saturday. I feel the energy. Hulkamania is running worldwide. And it just turns me on me, Gene. And I felt every one of those 25, 30 plus thousand people.